Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Dear students, ladies and gentlemen, 15 years ago, in the spring of 2004, Facebook had just started to exist. And the Hertie School also had just started to exist. We share the same birth date, which is 2003. Nick Clegg, at that time, was an unemployed politician who had just left the European Parliament. Britain was a reluctant member of the European Union, but Tony Blair made sure it didn't leave. Populism, at that time, was a historical concept. Five years ago, in the spring of 2014, or actually in the fall of 2014, Facebook had 1.3 billion users in a world of a bit more than 7 billion people. And Nick Clegg visited the Hertie School. He was standing at this very lectern as the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Britain was still a reluctant member of the European Union, but Nick Clegg made sure it didn't leave. Populism was still mainly a historical concept. Today, Facebook has 2.4 billion users, meaning for three people in the world, there is one Facebook account. Nick Clegg visits the Hertie School of Governance tonight as the Vice President of Global Affairs and Communications of Facebook. Britain is still a reluctant member of the European Union, but Boris Johnson might soon make sure it will leave. Populism is the main buzzword of our times. Ladies and gentlemen, correlation does not imply causality. Yes, we've seen the rise of populism and social media in the past 15 years. But we've also seen the rise of Nick Clegg and of the Hertie School. So <laughs> correlation doesn't mean causality. Let future historians judge whether the rise of social media and the fundamental changes in our political landscapes are somehow related. But it is the key task of today's researchers, regulators, and corporate actors to discuss how this relationship is being shaped. The internet is not uncharted territory, but there needs to be some understanding of who is charting, and in particular, who has to deal with the negative effects of the internet and social media from the spread of false information or hate speech to the abuse of private data. This is where the Hertie School comes into play. We're happy to provide uh, a space for discussions between researchers, regulators, and corporations on how to govern digitalization. And we currently invest into accompanying the discussion for a long time. In September, we will open our new Center for Digital Governance, the title says it all, and we've just created a data science lab at the Hertie School focusing on public policy. So, dear Nick, we already prepare for hosting you again in five years, whatever the topic. And who knows, perhaps Britain will still be a reluctant member of the European <laughs> Union then. Ladies and gentlemen, our agenda for tonight is simple. We will stay together until 7.20, and I'm delighted to share with you that Nick Clegg has accepted uh, to get another extra minutes out of his very busy schedule. He will first share a few thoughts with us. We'll then have a panel discussion introduced and moderated by one of Berlin's most outstanding journalists. Katrin Benhold is the Berlin bureau chief of the New York Times. She was a Niemann Fellow in, at Harvard University, and in 2011, she wrote a piece entitled Generation Facebook. I quote from that piece. Trevor Doherty is 19 
And to him, I'm a geriatric 36-year-old who belongs to that amorphous generation of people who don't really get social networking. Catherine, that was eight years ago. Uh, you will tell us how geriatric you feel tonight. She will also introduce the other panelists, one from the relation side and one from the academic side. Let me now call tonight's main speaker, Nick Leck, former Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and today, Vice President of Global Affairs and Communications of Facebook. Nick, when you stood here in 2014, you shared a dilemma with us. Let's call it the Brexit dilemma. You said, and I quote, we have an increasing need to govern ourselves at the level above the nation state, and yet the nation state remains the principal repository of democratic legitimacy. Let me now paraphrase this dilemma to adapt it to tonight's discussion. We could say something like, we have an increasing need, an increasing need to connect the world, and yet every individual needs to feel safe and protected. Let's call this the Facebook dilemma. Nick, the floor is yours. Thanks for coming. Thank you very, very much. That, that was a masterful introduction. In fact, um, I don't think the speech can remotely match the uh, expectations raised by that very elegant description of the dilemma of our times. And I'm delighted, really truly delighted, to be back here if, uh, as described earlier, in a somewhat different configuration to, to last time. And I sincerely hope, um, with my personal hat on rather than my sort of corporate one, that the United Kingdom does remain a, a reluctant member of the European Union for as long as it can possibly, or for as long as the European Union can stomach it. Um, so here's a news flash. Facebook wants to be regulated. That may seem counterintuitive. After all, what big company actively wants to be regulated? But it's true. And to understand why, you need to understand the journey Facebook has been on. Facebook launched on the 4th of February 2004, just 15 years ago. Now, to put that into, into context, two days beforehand, Roger Federer became the world number one. So Facebook has not even been around for as long as Roger Federer has been dominating men's tennis. It's still a young company, and one that was founded with a clear set of values, a desire to connect people together in a way that is open and free to everyone, with no little technical ingenuity and with an innate understanding of how we want to communicate with each other. And it caught on like wildfire and grew in a few short years into a global phenomenon, something bigger than was ever imagined or planned at the outset. And because there had never been companies doing what it was doing on the scale it was doing it, there was no roadmap to follow either. Because of the sheer speed and scale of its growth, unintended consequences struck, and Facebook was, it is true, sometimes slow to react. Facebook changed the world, but it didn't do it with some great master plan. It did it because its values struck a chord and its understanding of the profound human desire to connect, to build communities, to interact was fundamentally right. It gave people the means to, to keep in contact when they would otherwise have been separated and the ability for people to connect whose paths would never otherwise have crossed. The internet opened the door to a whole new way of communicating 
Facebook made it easy. It tapped into something and it caught a wave, enabled by a great technological acceleration that has touched every aspect of our everyday lives. The internet wasn't planned. It's like a city that grew from a few scattered villages on the banks of a river into a sprawling metropolis. There were no town planners, no blueprints. So now, in just a few short years, Facebook finds itself in a new world. And this new world requires new rules to be written. At the heart of those rules will be one fundamental question. What do we want the internet to be? It is one of the most important questions facing society today. And we in Europe and the West are not, only, are not the only ones trying to answer it. The Chinese have their own model. Others are work, working towards theirs. If the West doesn't engage with this question quickly and emphatically, it may well be that it isn't ours to answer. I took this position, this role at Facebook, last year because fundamentally I'm a techno-optimist, and I always have been. I believe wholeheartedly that the technological revolution that we're living through has the potential to transform the world and the lives of its citizens for the better. I also believe that technology itself is not inherently good or bad, but it can be put to good or bad uses by good or bad people. The printing press gave us the beauty of Shakespeare and the hatred of fascist propaganda. The radio brought music into the living rooms of millions and it gave dictators a captive audience for their propaganda. Every great technological revolution follows a similar pattern. First, there is euphoria, then fear, then eventually we find a sensible equilibrium. When cars were first on British roads, by law, you needed to have someone out front, on foot, waving a red flag to warn other motorists and pedestrians. Soon, our cars won't have drivers at all. Silicon Valley has enjoyed its euphoria stage, the vibrant, sun-drenched years of exponential growth fueled by the idealism of a new generation of entrepreneurs with the world at their feet and an unwavering belief that they were a force for good. Google's motto, don't be evil, was never intended to be ironic. They believed, like so many in Silicon Valley, that they were ushering in a new era of enlightened business. But the pendulum has now swung towards greater suspicion of tech. The danger is that suspicion turns into a phobia of tech altogether. Society has become increasingly anxious about how data is held, how it is used, and how it is monetized, and that has put tech companies into the public firing line. Those anxieties are understandable, and it is incumbent upon companies in Silicon Valley and elsewhere to remember that they will only ever succeed as businesses if they enjoy the wider consent of society. That early utopianism was never going to last, and the tech lash that has followed it won't last either. But my fear is that the often exaggerated and lopsided debate that exists around tech 
will lead to the baby being thrown out with the bathwater. We are perilously close to squandering the good of social media by overreacting to the bad. We need to have a more honest debate about what social media is and what it is not, what it can fairly be held responsible for and what it can't. A more honest debate needs to start with some humility. Let me give you three examples of areas where Facebook has, quite rightly, been strongly criticised. The first is about the company's attitude to the use of data in its early years. Facebook not only collected people's data, it operated a remarkably open platform where lots of third parties were able to integrate and build apps using that store of information at the user's discretion, direction. Facebook's early business model was designed at a time when attitudes, general attitudes towards data, were much more permissive. But society's attitudes have changed, and we have to change with them. That starts with acknowledging that data privacy has not always been the priority that it should have been. It absolutely is now. The second is that some profound problems occurred as a result of this open approach, most famously in the case of Cambridge Analytica. In that case, Facebook users shared their information with an academic in a way that was consistent with their own choices uh, and their friends' privacy settings. And then that academic sold the data to a private company in violation of Facebook's policies. And you've all heard how that story ends. Third, it is equally right to acknowledge that Facebook has not always thought deeply enough about how its services could be used or indeed abused by authoritarian regimes. We thought, perhaps with traces of that early utopianism, utopianism still in our bloodstream, that simply by making our products available in these places that we would be a force for good liberating people, giving them the ability to communicate in a way that they hadn't done before. We thought that these would only have positive outcomes. And we didn't foresee that in countries like Myanmar, the tinderbox of religious and ethnic tensions in these countries could catch a light on our platforms if we didn't have adequate safety systems in place. These criticisms are all legitimate. And they have all led to significant changes in Facebook's rules and attitudes that will minimise the chances of them happening again, some of them which I will expand on shortly. But some of the charges that have been levelled at Facebook are far wide of the mark. If you listen to our more breathless critics, you could be forgiven for thinking that we are single-handedly dismantling Western democracy, collaborating with the Russians, the Iranians, the Bilderberg Group, the Illuminati, and the guys who faked the moon landings to manipulate our citizens, rig elections, and tear down our democratic institutions. As a liberal, progressive internationalist, I have spent a career in politics arguing and campaigning against the forces of nationalist populism and authoritarianism. So I understand on a personal level, the millions of people who are surprised, many are still dismayed by the result of the 2016 presidential election or at Brexit, and they quite understandably want a way to explain what has happened. For many, Facebook has become the scapegoat. 
the malign force that has manipulated otherwise right-thinking people into acting against their own interests. But it is not the case. Given the evidence of Russian activity around the 2016 US election, it was natural for people to ask questions about the Brexit referendum. Facebook took these questions seriously and carried out a thorough investigation and found no evidence of significant outside interference. In fact, the infamous Russian Internet Research Agency spent just a single dollar to reach UK voters during the referendum campaign period. And whatever Cambridge Analytica did or did not do, the Information Commissioner's Office has found no evidence to suggest that they received data of UK Facebook users. And what's more, the ICO has recently, just last week, confirmed that it did not find any raw Facebook data on Cambridge Analytica's servers. But we're not complacent. Clearly, some have seen Facebook as a medium through which they can attempt to influence the outcomes of elections. We have already taken significant steps to tighten the rules on political advertising and to clamp down on fake accounts and malicious content. And because we're determined to better understand exactly what impact social media has on elections and democracy, we've recently commissioned more than 60 independent researchers from 30 academic institutions across 11 countries to really get under the skin of the subject. Another criticism is based on a complete misunderstanding of Facebook's business model. It is the claim that the way we make our money means that Facebook is incentivized to keep people glued to their newsfeed for as long as possible in order that they click on as much clickbait as we can thrust in front of them. As if Facebook's proverbial cash register kachings every time someone clicks on a you-wouldn't-believe-what-happens-next story. Or worse, that the algorithm deliberately drives you towards ever more sensationalist or extreme material, as if you could start by searching for videos of computer games and within a few clicks find yourself confronted by ISIS propaganda. That isn't how our business model works. The majority of what you see on your newsfeed is designed to be something that is genuinely of interest to you, either because it is gener generated by your own friends or the communities you are a part of, or based on being served ads for things that are likely to appeal to you. If we show you clickbait, you might click on it, but our research clearly shows that it devalues your experience and you end up not coming back. If we serve you extreme content, the vast majority of you would rightly run a mile. There is simply no incentive for Facebook to do either. The only incentive we have is to make using Facebook a rich, engaging and rewarding experience that people want to return to time and time again. Facebook also often gets criticised because it uses signals about people's behaviour on the internet in order to tailor advertising to them. The insinuation is that there is something inherently untoward about products being advertised to people based on their interests or tastes. Now, look, there's a legitimate debate to be had about how much data is gathered, where it comes from, how it is held and segmented. But the basic idea of trying to identify what consumers like and prefer 
in order to show them advertisements which may interest them is as old as the hills. After all, it's pointless for me to be served an ad for a coffee house in Mumbai or a record shop in downtown Dubrovnik. Like everyone else, I prefer to see advertisements for products and services which are relevant to me and my life. And this debate obscures, in my view, a much more significant fact about Facebook's business model. Facebook is free. It's for everyone. Some other big tech companies make their money by selling expensive hardware or subscription services, or in some cases both, to consumers in developed, wealthier economies. They are, it's a perfectly decent business model, but it's an exclusive, it's an exclusive club available only to aspirant consumers with the means to buy high-value hardware and services. By contrast, Facebook's business model is far more accessible to consumers around the world. It is free to the user, paid for by ads, making it available to anyone who has an internet connection. The way our business model has developed means that we are, in effect, recycling the advertising revenue we make in developed and growing markets so that everyone everywhere can use our apps free of charge. There's no exclusivity, no VIP access, no business class. Our services are as accessible to students in Guatemala, cattle farmers in the Midwest of the United States, office workers in Mumbai, tech startups in, in Nairobi, or taxi drivers here in Berlin. More than two billion people use our platforms because they can, because Facebook is for everyone. Facebook was founded on a very simple principle. We want to connect the world, and you don't do that by charging for admission. This has been a challenging time for the industry, and an important one. Facebook was focused on the good that comes with connecting people and did not pay enough attention to the harm. The challenges it has faced are largely and completely unprecedented. As such, Facebook has had to act to address serious ethical dilemmas and major societal issues. How do we balance individual privacy with the needs of security? Where do we draw the line between freedom of expression and harmful content. Facebook has had to accept its mistakes and act more responsibly. We have hired an army of more than 30,000 people and invested in our systems to counter the spread of fake news and misinformation, to reduce harmful content, and to ensure greater transparency for our users over how their data is used. We have cracked down on fake accounts, removing a mind-boggling 2.2 billion in the first three months of this year, the majority of which were automated accounts that we disabled before they could do anything. Advertisers are now asked to verify their identities, and that information is displayed on every political ad so that our users know who is responsible for the content they are seeing. We have built a searchable archive that shows you what other ads they have put out and which audiences saw, saw them. Those changes are already making a real difference. As acknowledged by uh, the outgoing European Parliament President Antonio Tajani when he praised Facebook for acting to stop outside interference in last month's European elections. Facebook is a new sort of company and brings with it a new set of responsibilities. We don't shy away from that. We don't create the content that appears on our services, but we absolutely accept 
that we are responsible for setting the parameters within which that content can be shared. The rules we have created to help our staff and our systems decide what is and is not acceptable on our platforms are called our community standards. It shouldn't be underestimated just how innovative and comprehensive these standards are. They cover violence and criminal behavior, safety, objectionable content, integrity and authenticity, intellectual property, and content-related requests. They are constantly evolving, published openly and in detail, and we report regularly on how they are enforced. Whether the rules Facebook has created and the system it uses to enforce them work, and whether they tread the right side of the line in terms of what is and is not allowed, will of course be the subject of much debate, and rightly so. We will get some things right and some things wrong. And that is why Facebook has created, or is in the process of creating, an independent oversight board whose decisions will be transparent and binding so people can appeal our content decisions. This is an incredibly important undertaking, and we're defining how this will work in practice with global input. Earlier today, this morning, here in Berlin, I was at, at our last oversight board workshop, speaking with experts to get their views on the design of the board. We have hosted similar sessions in Singapore, Delhi, Nairobi, Mexico City, and New York, in addition to roundtables and conversations with hundreds of people around the world. We are about to release a report that compiles all the input we have gathered and answering questions laid out in the draft charter for the oversight board. This feedback will help shape the final charter, which will be released later this summer. But it would be a much easier task, as well as a more democratically sound one, if some of the sensitive decisions that we have to make were instead taken by people who are democratically accountable to the people at large, rather than by a private company. After all, why should a private company decide who is or isn't a legitimate participant in an election? We need governments and policymakers to engage with issues like these and help set the boundaries and the parameters for us. One area where Facebook wants to do that is arguably the most important when it comes to the future of the way the internet and tech companies work. Data portability. That's a techie name for something enormously important. Data portability means your ability to take the data that you share with a private company and move it somewhere else. And of course, that's a lot easier said than done. It will need new rules to be written, in particular around which information you have the ability to take with you, where the responsibility lies for protecting information as it moves between services, and the creation of common standards for data to be transferred. Those rules shouldn't be left to private companies to decide for themselves. But if smart, re smart regulation can facilitate data portability, then it will open up a whole new wave of innovation and competition. The internet is entering a new phase. We are more aware than ever before of the liberating benefits of a fast, open, and accessible online world. And we are more aware than ever of the risks that such a world contains. 
The next turn of the wheel should be to create an internet where individuals are protected as well as empowered, where the opportunities that it creates are available to everyone and the harms we are all now aware of are minimised. These decisions can't be delayed. This is a really critical moment. As the tech lash dominates debate in the West, others are writing the new rules of the internet themselves. If we in Europe and America don't turn off the white noise and begin to work together, we will sleepwalk into a new era where the internet is no longer a universal space, but a series of silos where different countries set their own rules and authoritarian regimes soak up their citizens' data while restricting their freedom. The fact is, there is no longer a single unitary internet, but rather two internets, China and the rest of the world. The Great Firewall of China means great swathes of what we think is the internet, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp included, are unreachable by its citizens, and much of the content they can access is heavily surveilled and censored. While no other country has gone as far as China in seceding from the global internet, others are chipping away at its foundations too. But I am not fatalistic. There is a great opportunity here. By acting quickly and smartly, companies and governments in open societies can create the template for the internet across the world. We have done it repeatedly through history, from parliamentary democracy to free market economics and human rights standards. The common rules created in our hemisphere can become the example the rest of the world follows. That should be the spirit in which we work together from now on. The decisions in front of us cannot and should not be left to private companies alone. Governments and policymakers must engage proactively too. Collectively, we need to decide the answer to that fundamental question. What sort of internet do we want? And then we need to work together to rewrite the rules to ensure we get it. In doing so, we can create a new template for the internet that can be adopted across the world. One that respects the rights of individuals to choose what happens to their data. One that encourages competition and innovation instead of stifling it. And most importantly of all, one that remains open and accessible for everyone. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you. So I'm in the business of storytelling, and that was a good story. It's a bit long, but it was a good story. But like every good story, we need to fact check that story. You know, my newspaper, The New York Times, has covered The New York Times, the, the, the Facebook, aggressively over the last three years. In fact, I would say our approach to dealing with Facebook is probably similar to the approach that Ronald Reagan had with dealing with the Soviet Union. Trust, but verify, without the trust bit. So tonight's discussion is about regulation. It's not a subject that ordinarily packs out a room like this. But this is no ordinary regulation. The companies we're talking about regulating are in many ways more powerful than the government, governments supposedly regulating them. 
I don't think it's preposterous to suggest that Nick Clegg might be more powerful as head of public policy of Facebook than he was as deputy prime minister of the fifth largest economy in the world. These are private superpowers, and they require a whole new set of tools. When it comes to political communications, there's no doubt that Facebook is more powerful than any government in the world, which is why tonight's discussion is also about democracy. Not just in the sense that Facebook has become the platform of choice for those who want to disrupt our liberal democracies with dis disinformation campaigns or with hate speech that sometimes in real life turns into real violence. We've just had a political murder in Germany that was preceded by its own dose of online hate speech, including on Facebook. It's also about democracy because if we believe that these companies ought to be regulated, if we believe that they need to be observing our offline laws on privacy, on hate speech, and by the way, perhaps we should make them pay some fair taxes as well, if we believe those things, then we need to enforce them. Because if we don't, then our democracies will at best look weak and ineffective, and at worst, they will look like they're colluding with multinational companies, neither of which is very healthy at a time of rising populism. So, let's start. Um, I might stay up here, I feel quite powerful, actually. Um, Danny, you are a professor of digital governance at the Hertie School, but what I want you guys in the room to retain about Danny is that she actually started her own social network five years, six years before Mark Zuckerberg in 1998. But rather than making it public, you kept it private for your friends, so rather than a billionaire, you're now an academic. <laughs> Any regrets? Oh, I certainly don't want to be in Mark Zuckerberg's position right now. <laughs> Good answer. So, um, Danny, let's start with you, because in Germany, with its very particular history, we've had a very sort of aggressive, top-down approach to regulation of big tech. And the question, I guess, would be, is this a blueprint that is useful for the rest of Europe and possibly for the rest of the world? Maybe you can give us a sort of five-minute overview of what's going on here, and then we can launch into a discussion. Sure, I'll do my best. So um, in 2018, a law was implemented in Germany called the, um, it's now also in English used as, um, they use the German abbreviation NetzDG, Network Enforcement Act, which um, requests social networks, social media companies of more than 2 million users to block or remove harmful, no, unlawful content. <laughs> Uh, within seven days, um, and should companies not comply, they will face a fine of 50 million euro. Um, Germany is often mentioned as an example as the forerider of the what I call the content-based approach towards regulating social media companies. Personally, I have my doubts about the content-based approach. Um, I think we should be discussing alternatives. Uh, Benoit will be talking about ideas that are coming out of France that are emphasizing transparency. Currently in the UK, there's a white paper that is being circulated, which uh, my reading is emphasizes or frames the discussion more as, as a public health issue. Um, I think we should seriously consider these alternative approaches, although currently 
amongst the companies that I talk to and also policymakers, the content-based approach seems to be um, the only one that is being considered. No matter what kind of approach we're uh, discussing here, um, you know, transparency, content-based, or public health approaches, all of them are calling for the creation of oversight bodies, which Nick has just talked to us about. Um, I want to raise three key questions that we sh I think we should discuss um, when we think about these oversight bodies. The first question I want to raise is um, who is going to be the members of these oversight bodies, how are they going to be selected, and how are they going to reach decisions, especially when we talk about decisions about ethical standards and standards for the deletion or blocking of online content. Um, Taiwan actually has a very interesting um, non-governmental approach to these to an, an organization that is a multi-stakeholder model that is also taking uh, um, in, to advise opinions and advice by journalists and NGOs and users, and not only um, lawyers and bureaucrats. Um, and I think we have more, uh, more examples to, to look at. Um, a second question I want to raise is, um, at what kind of administrative level do we want those oversight bodies to be created? Um, um, as far as I know, inside Facebook, um, there is a discussion as to whether it should be created at the international level under the UN. Um, but when you talk to policymakers in Europe, they uh, talk about whether there should be national level bodies or EU level bodies, maybe one EU level body in order to uh, avoid inefficiencies. Um, my worry here is that the creation of these institutions follows a territorial-based approach, which directly clashes with the actual communication technology that it aims to regulate. Um, you know, uh, we constantly travel across transnational borders. Uh, we are using to we are used to using smartphones that have access to services that are regulated in many different countries in the world. Um, so uh, my hunch is that we're going to see a situation similar to what we've seen in the area of copyrights, where people will have access to different kind of content depend on their IP addresses or the language that they serve. And then states will also differ in terms of how they approach VPN use, because VPNs are a very easy way to circumvent these regulations. And third, and the final question I want to raise is, um, how do we make sure that the like all actors involved are taking on social responsibility? So um, obviously, oversight bodies are one means in order to hold social media accountability uh, companies more accountable, um, but we should not forget that users also play a part in this. And Nick, you have just talked to us about the business model of Facebook, um, which, by the way, um, you know, I, I, my own work, work is on China. When I talk to um, tech developers in Baidu, Tencent, and Sina, they actually agree that the social media 
um, business models that they work with are aimed at increasing the user base and also increasing user activity. So I'm not sure how why Facebook's business model should be different from other kinds of social media. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but given that uh, all business models depend on user activity um, and users currently don't have the tools and strategies in order to deal with harmful content, I think we need more media education amongst children but also amongst adults. And then finally, uh, one policy that I think could be, could be used to support the creation of these oversight bodies really emphasizes the role of journalists. We have actually um, a whole profession that has expertise on how to deal with hate speech, how to deal with fake uh, news and content, but currently we're letting that profession die rather than um, uh, strengthening their role in the discussion. Thank you, Danny. Um, Benoit, you are in charge of running this experiment in France for President Macron. You are also trying to design hate speech regulation, but you're doing it very differently from the Germans. You're working very closely with the company, with Facebook. And actually, again, one thing to retain for the audience, you basically are a regulator. You spent 20 years in regulation, you told me, but you did go over to the other side for one year. You went to Google, and you were Google's head of public policy. And so... You, you, in France, in France. And so you know, um, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't put it quite that way, but you know your enemy. So um, <laughs> has this stint at Google inside the companies that you're now trying to regulate made you more or less convinced that we need regulation? Four words, too big to trust. Too big to trust. Too big to trust. I guess uh, we were lucky. We were offered by uh, Facebook to run an experiment in France, uh, the guinea pig being Facebook. So we set up a team of 10 experts, and we worked with them for several months, uh, January, February, part of March and this year. They've been very open to us, telling us every day, in every meeting, we've never shared so many information with any government in the world. At the end, it was somewhat repetitive. And at the end of those three months, we gathered the 10 experts and we wondered, what are we going to report to the minister? And we realized we were stuck with the question of trust. Do we trust Google, Facebook or don't we trust them? Because we realized that although we had spent three months with them, we had nothing tangible, no facts. We have seen computer screens, we have seen decks which had been cleared by lawyers, that was very clear. And we, but we could not say if we knew something, was it true or not? And we realized that the biggest issue is that uh, you are stuck at the end of the day saying, do you trust them or not? And they are too big to trust. Governments are not in the business of trust, this is a business for churches, not for governments. So we definitely realized that we needed some regulation uh, because I'm a tech enthusiast, but I'm also uh, enthusiastic on regulated markets, not free markets. So we started saying, let's be methodic and answer a question. Why? Too big to trust. Um, Self-regulation, honestly, there's a lot of value in it. You can think of all the things that uh, Facebook has done over the last uh, year in trying to fix the platform. But at the end of the day, it's too slow, too reactive, and it lacks credibility because you don't have this hard information. 
So self-regulation is not sufficient. What are we proposing uh, based on our experience? Two things, imposing a duty of care and an enhanced transparency. Duty of care, which is basically mean fixing the self-regulation. We want it to be faster, proactive, credible. And transparency is a key element. Why transparency? We'd say, well, you, we know everything on, on Facebook. Why would you ask them this transparency requirement? Well, you have to realize that Facebook is a media, but it's a non-transparent media. Media normally are transparent. You can look at TV. Everybody sees the same thing, and then you pass your judgment. Do you like it or not? You can, uh, newspaper is transparent. Everybody can read the newspaper. But social media are individualized. Each one of us are seeing a different media because they are mixing your personal information and algorithm. So we all see different, me uh, different social medias. So that's a key element which needs to be fixed. Since we cannot observe the result, because we all get different Facebook, we need to get a view on how Facebook is being built. That's the legitimacy of this enhanced transparency. We cannot discover what are the major changes that have implemented in the algorithm just by seeing the impact. Because in some cases, it will be too late. You can imagine. You can imagine. We have seen. You've seen a newspaper where uh, going in some direction, pushing the debate, but then people can react. Here, you cannot react. You cannot see what's happening. So the transparency is really a key element, and we think you can implement it easily with a regulator. Transparency for dummies, people like me. Uh, and in fact, Facebook is already doing it. You have this right-click uh, on the content, and we have a submenu. Why do I see this content? That's uh, an answer. But you need more. We think transparency for experts, for data scientists, who really information which is uh, required would be required by law, explaining how the, the algorithm works. So they would keep the freedom to decide how to set up the algorithm, but they would need to explain it and to maintain this information accurate on a day-to-day -day basis, basically. And we think we, see we need also a transparency for academics, which is a capacity for academics, maybe not to extract the data, because we have seen the result with uh, um, Cambridge Analytica, but to get some access, some control access, because social networks are changing our society, and we have yet to understand how this is taking place, what are the consequences, and we want the academics in the next 50 years to have the capacity to implement their research as they did on traditional media uh, in the past. Last question, who should do this, uh, such a thing? That's tricky. It's a platform, it's a global platform. We are in the European Union, we have our internal market, we want to keep it. So we need something at AU level, an AU regulation that would apply across the board on all AU countries. At the same time, if the harm is being done, the harm is local. It's a harm done to the social cohesion of a country. And this thing is really in the hand of member state government. So we need to invent a new mechanics where the rules are set up at AU level, but the enforcement is done locally. But then we need also to add back some AU involvement to mitigate the political risk arising from member state involvement. You can imagine it's complex. You would have 28 regulators, 
checking that the platform is fulfilling its uh, transparency and duty of care requirement, you clearly need to have a check and balance at the EU level. I'll stop at this point. Thanks. Great. Nick, it just occurred to me that uh, you've only been in your job for like eight, nine months. So I'm wondering whether maybe you have a plan like Benoit, just going to do this for a year and then go back and really get them? No. <laughs> right. Um, I want to pick you up on a couple of things that you said in your opening remarks. Uh, first of all, jumping off the trust issue that Benoit just raised, one of the things that Facebook says, and you've just said it again, is that you want to be regulated. The problem is that the de delivery hasn't always been great. And one thing just fresh off the European elections that comes to my mind, because I experienced this, this default myself, is that you, know, you promised us all that you would have this archive of political ads for all countries with an API that was designed for researchers and journalists um, you know, to access everything, all the information, and then determine whether there were mis disinformation campaigns. But there were very serious problems. Um, this thing was only online for about 30 days before the actual votes were cast. It constantly broke. In fact, the researchers across the world tell me that the API was only functional for like one day. Um, at no point could anyone get this sort of picture of what ads were actually being run on Facebook. So by the time this election arrived, the, the one Facebook guy who was sort of in charge of this, the engineer, actually emailed those re researchers back, the, the researchers who had filed reports on the bug, and, and basically openly admitted that they wouldn't be fixed. So you know. You are one of the, in history, one of the richest country, uh, companies. So the question is, why can't you make ads available to the European public when you promised it? So look, uh, oh. uh, look, we can either spend, does this work? Does this work? Sorry. Uh, on the execution of the, of the, the, the archive, uh, I'm absolutely confident we'll get there. Did we get there smoothly? No, because it's never been done before. And look, can I be blunt? We can exchange lots of individual things. You didn't execute this, you didn't execute that. The question is, which was the beginning of your question before you swerved into a sort of thing about the execution of the API, is who should be making the rules about the European elections, for example, in this case? I was in Brussels in January, I think it was, this year, announcing on behalf of Facebook, uh, I literally a stone's throw away from the office that I used to have in the European Parliament when I was an MEP first elected 20 years ago, a set of new uh, principles that we were uh, laying out for the European elections, including uh, making sure that everybody uh, who pays for a political ad in Facebook during election time has to say who they are. Uh, then, imperfect though the execution clearly has been, that you have a, an archive in which these political ads are then held for seven years. You can see who's paid for it, who's seen it, what purpose, and so on. There is simply no advertising body anywhere in the world that voluntarily is committed to that degree of transparency and that degree of, uh, that length of time during which things are archived. Now, we can, sure, we can have a debate about whether the engineer got it right and so on and so forth. The key thing is this. I shouldn't have been setting out those rules to an audience of European officials and MEPs parenthetically as a Brit, a member of a country about to leave the European Union, on behalf of a private American company. I should have been there saying, thank you for your rules, we'll abide by them. It was the European elections. So there has to be a limit at which point private companies are blamed for the absence of, of rules, in this case, for an election which we were tr trying to serve. By the way, political ads, it's not a sort of commercial calculation for Facebook. 
don't think we make any money out of it at all. We get a lot of grief for it. But we think it's right, of course, and because politicians and campaigners quite rightly want to reach voters, and they do so through Facebook, and we want to do so transparently and safely. Have we got all the answers? No. But the fundamental problem in all of this is that I was, on behalf of an American company, setting out our elaborate rules for a European election. I really hope the next European elections, I won't have to do that. And it'll be European rules set by European lawmakers in the European Parliament and elsewhere, which we and then everybody else who is active in the online space works to. So, so sure, we, we can be criticised for execution on this um, innovation or any other, but I think the fundamental question for a gathering like this is, is it, should it be Facebook coming up with these rules for the European elections, or should it be European legislators uh, and, and as someone who has spent 20 years as a decision-maker and a legislator, it's unambiguous, the, the latter. We then got into a ludicrous argument my, between ourselves and the uh, European Parliament because we found that the only bodies, organisations, that had any practical experience in how to administer these uh, ads and check on them were national uh, uh, electoral administrations and watchdogs. So logically enough, we said, well, we will work with those national watchdogs. And logically enough, we said the only way we can make this watertight and safe from the outside interference that we were constantly being accused that we were not being protective enough was to work with those bodies. And then everyone in the European Parliament went nuts and said, how dare you? You should do this through a European regulator, to which we said, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Invent it and we'll do it. So it's just a very good example where I'm absolutely not uh, sort of trying to duck whether we were effective in execution or not, but where the fundamental problem is we are making up rules when we shouldn't. They really should be made by, in this case, decision makers who are democratically accountable to their own peoples. Is that a fair criticism, Benoit? Do you feel as a regulator and somebody who works for a government that this is a fair criticism? I mean, some people have argued that this technological change that has been unfolding in the early 2000s, and you know, 2007 was this key year that my colleague Thomas Friedman sort of singles out as the year where like, I don't know, 30 things, 35 things happened, you know, from YouTube and Airbnb to big data, you know, and we missed it because of 2008, the financial crisis, and we were distracted. Maybe. Did, did we, I don't know, was our eye off the ball as regulators and governments? Has Nick got a point here? Honestly, uh, governments are not uh, leading the charge in the digital transformation on administrative body neither. We're rather following. I would uh, be lying if I would be saying that the French government, French administration is really uh, up to scale. ready uh, for on the digital part. But I guess at the end of the day, we have to be pragmatic. And the question really is, how do we start? The question we had, honestly, in our experiment was try to regulate Facebook on hate speech. This is so difficult. How do you regulate the media on hate speech? How do you regulate the media in terms of fake news, even worse, more complex? What we realize is that right now we are lacking uh, information, governments, administrative body. We don't have that. It's urgent that we build this thing. It's urgent that we build that through transparency. And you use the word, what kind of uh, internet do we want? And I really think that the digital transformation is a revolution which empowers people. Well, that's exactly what we should be doing. You should be, as users, empowered by having more information to understand how the platform is working. As academics, you should have more information. 
That's how we should build uh, this thing. So I think we should not build regulators of social network. That sounds like controlling those networks. That sounds like what authoritarian state would do. But rather, regulators of the accountability and the transparency of social networks, enablers, because what we want to regulate is how we interact together in this digital world. Nobody, no institution should do that alone. We should do it together. But we need to be informed, to have access to the information, to be educated on how those things work. So let's start it tomorrow. And I heard that uh, Facebook will support us now, from now on. Um, Danny, let me pick, pick up on this point that you made about the business model, because that caught me off guard as well when I was listening to you a little bit. There's a sort of, you know, very clear line of thought that, you know, in the attention economy, um, engagement is all that counts. And of course, the more sort of sensationalist and, and crazy the content is, the more the number of eyeballs and, and, you know. There is research that suggests this is the case. Clearly, that research is at odds with yours. I, I just looked it up as you were speaking, it's basically a Pew study, which let me just cite it. I don't know if you know the study, but in, in, in 2017, a study of 200,000 press releases and Facebook posts, Pew Research Center found that US members of Congress received 50% more likes, three times as many comments, and twice the number of shares for posts that expressed indignant, indignant disagreement than for those that expressed bipartisan sentiment. So, you know, myself, I've, I've spent heaps of time with political consultants who all say, that their candidates' Facebook posts, you know, um, likes and sort of exposure increases, the more sort of sensationalist the content is. This is sort of one site saying one thing and Facebook saying another. I mean, do you have numbers to show us or do you have research to show us or? Me. Yeah, I just wanted to jump Sorry, off Danny's Sorry, first question. I just can't, I have to just dwell on the irony of, of, uh, of um, you know, folk from the traditional press complaining about sensationalist headlines. Um, this is as old as the hills. Newspapers use sensational headlines every single day to attract readers. I pick up the Daily Mail, a newspaper I personally loathe, because of a sensationalist headline, and then I put it down. I don't like the experience. I've still picked it up. It's as old as the hills. And by the way, it's the traditional media have excelled in clickbaity, sensationalist material to get engagement. But as any sensible journalist will tell you, if you want long-term engagement with your readers, hooking them with, with fear or with anxiety or with sensationalist emotions doesn't last. And our research clearly, clearly shows that, that if you want people to come back, because as Benoit has quite rightly explained, your news feed is, is quite different to the way that people often talk about it. It's totally personalised. It's... it's, it's and what the algorithm does, some people talk about the algorithm as if it's some sort of mysterious godlike creature in a black box somewhere in Menlo Park. It's a ranking mechanism. It's a ranking mechanism. Because as all of you who use Facebook, if you do, or social media, you know that you usually, you usually look at your social media uh, feeds when you're standing in the queue of a supermarket or by the bus, and you do it for a few minutes. So it's incredibly important, given there's an almost infinite amount of material that you could see in those three or four minutes as you're waiting in the queue for the supermarket. Uh, how it's ranked. And the main determinant that ranks it, by the way, is not an algorithm, it's you. It's your friends, it's your proximity to people, it's the groups you're part of. You know, I get a lot of stuff from my younger brother, from Fulham Football Club, because I'm an advocate of, I'm afraid they've been demoted recently from the Premier League, alas. So we spend a lot of time talking on social media about that. And the algorithm just ranks, you know, ranks those things. Now, um, our experience is absolutely overwhelming. If you want people to keep doing that, 
if you give them the unpleasant sensation of having kind of been attracted to something which elicits a kind of emotional shock, like a tabloid newspaper headline, guess what? After a while, they don't like it. I don't like it. I don't want to use that thing. And we're not, you know, we're not, we, it's, not only, it's not only because that's just not a kind of nice product to have. You know, the vast, vast, vast majority of people, it's often forgotten in these debates, who use social media, use them for perfectly innocent, good and positive reasons. To share photos of their cats, to show off photos about their wedding, their holiday, their kids. To get onto the group about the parents and the local community, about the local football team. To support the cause, to, support, to clean up the local park. That is what billions of people do. Of total newsfeed content, news, which we're all obsessed about because we talk in this media and political elite of ourselves, is about four, just over 4% of the total content. So we've just got to keep a sense of perspective. Why on earth would Facebook, given that is the motivation that billions of people use every day to use Facebook, why would we want to pollute uh, uh, deliberately, deliberately uh, the personalised news feed people have with sensationalist, ugly, aggressive or fear-mongering content. There's because it makes no, money. No, it doesn't. That's the whole point. You've got to understand, if you want someone to click on an ad, why, uh, why does anyone think that an angry or fearful user is any more likely to click on an ad for a new belt or a wallet or a pair of shoes or a new cat bit? It, it just defies the most basic logic. There's just no, there's just no commercial, yet alone wider incentive for social media companies to create an ugly emotional atmosphere in which people inhabit their personalized news feeds. I'd love a quick reaction from Benoit and Danny to that, and then I'm going to throw it open, and ideally I'd love a student first. That's a good example. And a lady, maybe. That's a, a good example. We don't know whether what uh, was said is true or not. What makes really money at the end of the day? We are always struggling with this thing. We don't know. We don't have the information. You have all heard the, uh, the theory that we are locked in information bubble. I call it a theory because it's academics saying we postulate this idea. We, want, we should be able to have the capacity to put it to test and to test whether it's true or not. So we need information to get out of this situation where at the end we end up just making uh, challenging all the statement because we don't have enough information. That's the key part, uh, key part in the regulation from my point of view. Yeah, I, w I would also say that the, our biggest challenge uh, amongst independent academics is that we don't get access to the data and we have difficulties checking the measurement, the conceptualization and so forth. So I would love to talk to some tech developers at Facebook and actually work with you together in figuring out what the Can I just say a small is. thing yeah, about sure. that? Yeah. I think this is absolutely right. Of course we need more data shared with academics. Um, if anyone had forgotten, Cambridge Analytica originated with an academic. So you can imagine the atmosphere in Facebook. There is immense nervousness, immense nervousness about repeating that mistake. That was a legitimate academic legitimately taking data as I expect, and then illegitimately selling it on. So we have become incredibly anxious that that should not be repeated because quite rightly the public and decision-makers expect that we learn the lessons from that. So what we have now painstakingly done, and I totally admit it is much, much slower than I would like, or Ben would like, or you would like, Danny, is we are very, very haltingly trying to find new ways of anonymizing data, aggregating it sensibly, and then having academics use the data. And that's why I refer to this project which we call Social Science One, 
which involves, as I think about, sort of 30 universities, looking at a very specific issue, which is data post-2016 on elections. My hope, this is my little private dream, if I can share it, is that if that is successful, and that builds confidence amongst academics and people in Facebook, we could move to something analogous to a sort of independent or semi-independent research institute, which would have established procedures by which data can be safely transferred from a private entity of Facebook into the hands of academics. But I really don't want anyone to think... It, it sounds easy, and, and you know, it's, it, it, uh, it, it's, it's a lot more... It's proved, at least, to be a lot more complicated to do so in a, do so in a way which is privacy-protected, anonymised, and useful for academics. But that we need to do more of it, I totally agree. Totally agree. Who's got the first question? Otherwise, I'll ask another one. Ah, there's one back there. Are there mics? Or? Oh, there's one here. Okay. And then we have this, the gentleman afterwards. Go Hi, for it. Um, I'm Rachel. Um, I just graduated from Hertie two weeks ago. Um, and you've spoken a bit about how you think it's really inappropriate how a private company can get involved in um, democratic pro processes or elections, for example. So I, worried, I wondered how you can square that with Facebook's lobbying of European countries over GDPR regulation and how you can, where the line begins and ends between lobbying and getting involved in democratic, democratic processes? Um, look, lobbying is one of those terms. It's like so many emotive language. Lobbying has a sort of grubby, dirty resonance to it. I spent 20 years as an MEP, as an MP, as a Deputy Prime Minister, where people make representations about what they want. That is how demo democracies work. And then we rely on decision makers and lawmakers to be strong enough to make up their own minds and to exercise their own judgment. And it would be ludicrous to assume that any, whether it's German car manufacturers, uh, British sheep farmers, every, uh, Dutch fishermen, every, everybody represents their views. And they should do so as transparently and openly as possible. There's absolutely no secret, by the way, what kind of things... Because we set them out openly. We can't. You can't sort of. You can't say one thing in private and another thing in in public. Certainly not for a company as quite rightly scrutinised as 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 as, as Facebook. Um, uh, so look, in my experience, having spent twenty years in public life, the areas of influence in politics which were least transparent and most corrosive were proprietors and editors of powerful newspaper groups influencing individual politicians. And I've seen decades of. Uh, traditional media uh, groups exerting astonishing influence over over politicians, uh, and uh, I have seen I have seen nothing comparable to that in my new capacity in Facebook. In fact, I'm constantly urging uh, Cheryl Sandberg and, and Mark Zuckerberg to travel more um, rather than less. But do does a company like Facebook? make representations about what it thinks is right. Well, of course it does. It would be ludicrous if it didn't do so. Is that untoward? I don't think it is. Do I think it's possible, as Benoit explained, that we can make any progress on how to regulate the internet without the technicians and the engineers who now know how the online, works, uh, online world works involved? No, I don't. And, and look, you know, all I would urge everybody is to get beyond caricature. If you want to... You know, we can, we can yell at tech or we can fix tech. And, you know, there are thousands of people who work for Facebook. And guess what? They're not evil. They're not bad people. These are sons and daughters, fathers and mothers. These are people who have to pay their bills, who care about their pets, who love the environment. These are human beings. 
And they're, you know, they're, not, they're not bad people. As I try to explain as honestly as I could in this speech, they are participants in this extraordinary explosive growth of an industry, which is barely a decade and a half old, and which now needs new guardrails. And I'm not remotely expecting that everyone should believe anything that everyone says from any of those companies. Absolutely, exercise scepticism. But let's not get to the point, which I think a lot of the debate has got to, where almost anything that anyone says from Silicon Valley is discredited because it comes from Silicon Valley. If we do that, we will never come up with intelligent public policy. And what I try to do in politics is what I try and do now, is distinguish fact from fiction, try and, just, try and retain independent judgment whilst also trying to appreciate the facts. If we do it in that spirit, I think the next five years or so could be a really creative time to come up with the new rules of the internet, much as we came up with the new rules for the factory age, the mechanic age, the steam, the steam industrial revolution, and so on. We had another question back there, the gentleman on the aisle. Uh, thank you. My name is Etienne. I work as an analyst in the financial sector. Um, I'd be interested in the panel's opinion on the new cryptocurrency that was just announced by Facebook. Um, should a private company with 2.5 billion users really have this kind of power over the financial sector, people's transactions, etc.? Thank you. And also, might I ask, add to that question, if you say that you won't share data with Facebook, can we believe you? Because you said the same thing about WhatsApp. And then you reneged, and yeah, you got fined 120 million, but nothing else really changed. So why should we believe you? Do you want me to? Or, sure. Or to, um, uh, well, I suspect you won't believe anything. So we say so. So so I, I can't really help you if you don't want to believe anything. We the WhatsApp case, if you really want to go, is wasn't exactly as you describe it. It was a, it was a slightly different um, error that we were fined for. It was not actually as Margarita Vestraya, if you want to Google, has said herself. We did not transgress the original commitments we made when we bought a, a WhatsApp, so that's not true. Um, I can only assert that we have no interest, and, and I will come in, in a minute, why we cannot make the data bridge that you are alleging we might, which is this. This will not be, if it happens, if it gets off the ground, hasn't been launched, all that's happened is that we've announced the plans for a cryptocurrency using blockchain technology, will not be a Facebook currency. It just can't be. So what is... What the plans that we've set out, and I'll come in, if I may, very briefly in 30 seconds about why we're doing it. it the idea is that if, we, if the world can create a stable cryptocurrency, which holds its value, rather than the wild gyrations that have blighted cryptocurrencies in the past, it could be a really useful store of value and payment currency for people who are presently shut out of the banking system. This is a classic example of new technology trying to address a market failure. There are 1.7 billion people in the world who, who cannot get a bank account. One billion of them have a phone. The vast majority of them are in some of the poorest communities in the world. Lots of them rely on remittances sent from their, their kids, their parents, their aunts and uncles from elsewhere. And at the moment, there's absolutely no way for them to receive those payments. The cryptocurrency is an attempt as set out in this sort of white paper to try and address that market failure. It will not be run by Facebook. It'll be an association, and we're hoping that it'll be like 100 companies at the time that it's launched, uh, established in Geneva, and Facebook will have one vote out of 100. It is true that it's Facebook engineers and David Marcus, who used to work at PayPal, who's very much kind of driven the intellectual thinking by this. But it will not be, it cannot be run by Facebook. Facebook will be one amongst a whole bunch of other companies, some of which have already been announced. Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, um, 
uh, and, and so on. What Facebook will then do, as by the way can many other developers, because the blockchain beta tests, which we're now going to start, will be completely open source, so any other developer can look at it and see whether they think they can use that technology for their own, to provide their own services, is that we will provide, if it works, a wallet on, on WhatsApp and Messenger, which will then allow those billion people, with those phones, but without a bank account, to use it. And I don't know, if you are a, someone living, I don't know, in a, in a country with hyperinflation, where every time you go to the supermarket, the loaf of bread is twice as expensive as it was before, being able to uh, receive money from someone elsewhere, given the astonishingly high transfer costs that still exist in the traditional banking system, it could be really useful. But if it's not, or if the regulators don't like it, or the central banks don't like it, it won't even be born, it won't even happen. Of course it needs to be properly regulated. Of course that a lot of what the finance ministers, the Bank for International Settlements, the IMF, Mark Carney have said, which is of course this needs to be safe, it needs to be properly regulated. It, it won't come into existence if it's not regulated, but it will not be a Facebook cryptocurrency much though I understand that all the headlines have said it is a Facebook cryptocurrency. Any more questions? Okay, the lady here on the aisle and then the lady in the middle there. Um, hi, I'm Corn Morgan. I voted for you just before you went to coalition, but that's a different question. Um, <laughs> for all the Brits in here. Um, so I think it's, there's a really interesting tension between you talking about Facebook, we want to collaborate with governments with democracies, we're here to sort of strengthen your democracy. And I just feel like, first of all, the tax question, which I don't even want to get into, but that is a clear undermining of democracy. Um, but we're seeing tech companies, particularly in the US, um, starting to take over the traditional realm of um, what was government. So Amazon is launching its own healthcare system. Um, Facebook is launching its own currency, whether that works or not, we'll see. Um, but the reason why they can do that is because you have so much data and many people argue that data created by the public should belong to the public. So my question is, do you feel like Facebook would really be prepared to um, give its data for free to governments in order to sort of share data on people's health, on people, the way people move perhaps, to make cities more sustainable, all of these kinds of things, which is actually a traditional government realm, at the expense of, of, of potentially like closing off new business models for Facebook. So basically, maybe not going into this you know, area and saying, no, this is a government area, we give you access to this data because it belongs to the public. Do you think that Facebook would be comfortable with doing that? Yes, and I'll come to some examples, but I just, can I just, I just really question the premise. The premise, I think, is that data that is useful cannot be, to, to, to society at large, cannot be useful to Facebook, and that Facebook hoards data that no one else can get hold of. It, it just, it's just simply not the way the data is held or organised. So yes, of course, we do countless things. Um, I think now the online Facebook work that we do to encourage blood donations, for instance, is one of the largest in the world. We work with UN agencies to identify humanitarian disasters. We work with refugee agencies to get information via our apps to refugees who are in distress uh, in, uh, in, in times of natural disaster. Facebook becomes, in effect, sometimes the only 
SOS and emergency system, which of course we make available. We work constantly. One of, one of my teams works day and night with the intelligence services on anti-terrorism operations. And there's a huge amount we do. So I just, I just don't, I'm sorry, I just don't understand, I don't understand, I certainly don't accept this premise. I know you said you feel it, but I don't see, I've seen nothing that suggests to me that one comes to the exclusion of the other. You said it in passing, but it's really important to this, important point in this, about tax. Um, uh, companies like Facebook, and indeed any other company in the online world, should pay, must pay, and should be obliged to pay the tax they're told to by the tax authorities. Guess what? Facebook is not a government. It doesn't write tax code, and it can't, and it shouldn't. What is absolutely true is that the tax system we have, in the, certainly in North America and Europe, is way out of date. Hasn't been, hasn't been nearly updated enough to recognize that we've moved from an offline into an online world in the way that we live, the way that we buy, the way we communicate, and so on and so forth. The only way that will be fixed is if governments get their act together and actually decide new rules on the tax system. There's an incredibly important process going on at the moment. The G20 talked about it at length in their summit the week before last. I was last week at the OECD. The OECD are leading this effort. I won't bore you with other details. They've got four different models, which they hope will, be, will get agreement from Europeans and Americans to update the taxes that are paid by online companies. If that means that those online companies, including Facebook, pay more tax, so be it. As long as that tax is done transparently in a non-discriminatory fashion, fine. Um, but, the, you know, again, I, I, there's nothing. Uh, I found it hard enough when I was in politics to try and get my own government, yet alone other governments, to agree, agree on new tax changes. There's very little that private companies can do if governments themselves in the G20, in the G7, and the OECD can't agree on new tax approach. But does there need to be a new approach to tax? Of course there does. Of course there does. Because the whole tax system is based on taxing bricks and mortar, physical products, widgets and cars, rather than invisible, uh, intangible uh, online uh, services. So of course we need a new tax. And, and, and honestly, both personally and corporately, nothing would be delight me more. But, you know, Shout at the people in the OECD. If the, the, the faster they can get those new tax arrangements in place, the better. I'm afraid I've just been told to wrap this up. I think there are tons more questions. I would love to stay another hour, but I think Nick has to go. Um, I think it's pretty clear after this very short and, and unfinished discussion that maybe rather than a technology problem, we have a democracy problem. And I mean, I don't know. To simplify and exaggerate as we journalists love to do, um, I will quote the great Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you might not get there. The feeling I had tonight is that with regulation, we're still at the very early stages of asking questions and not actually really answering them. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herity-school.org.